Hello, and thank you for listening to the Wrangling Ways podcast in partnership with Timothy James and Partners. I'm Elliot Arwin, and in December 2023, I'll be rowing 5,000 kilometres solo and unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean, raising funds for the British Heart Foundation. After six years of being in and out of hospital in attempts to control various arrhythmia, in February 2020, I was fitted with a pacemaker. In each episode of the podcast, I'll give a brief roundup of how the journey to the start line is progressing and have a chat to a guest for them to share their story. To launch the series, this week, Tim Whiting, founder of Timothy James and Partners, will be interviewing me. In 1995, deciding he wanted to revolutionise the way in which financial advice was delivered, Tim founded TJP with a goal of delivering bespoke, honest, independent advice rooted in traditional values. Tim and the directors of TJP believe in building lasting relationships that go beyond the exceptional financial services that they provide. In 2021, Timothy Jameson Partners supported Kingston Hospital to raise money for the Children's Cancer Ward, and that was around 26 to 30,000 pounds. And this time round, Elliot and I have been working towards raising money for the British Heart Foundation. So why did Timothy James and Partners think that was a good idea? As a business, we look after about 4,000 people. Uh, We receive about 50 new referrals for people coming in with various problems that they require solutions for on a monthly basis. And about 10 to 15% of our work is how do you ensure somebody who is looking to cover what happens in the event of their death to their business, which we call shareholders protection, What happens to the business if they die or they're diagnosed with a listed critical illness? Does the business get a lump sum to pay its creditors off, its bank off, to get the second charge off their house? That benefits for the company, but also in terms of children and school fees and family protection. So it represents around 10 to 15% of what we do. Um, And it's amazing the number of people that we look after over the last 27 years that when you're filling in the forms have what is known as atrial fibrillation. So when Elliot approached me about being diagnosed with atrial fibrillation last year and about whether Timothy Jameson Partners would like to raise awareness and support him on this challenge, I thought that that would be an engaging area for the clients, for the journalists, for Timothy Jameson Partners and our accountants and lawyers to get behind. So I think the first question is, Elliot, when were you diagnosed? And how did it happen? Was it on the rugby field? Was it when you were doing some sport? Far less uh, romantic than that. So just, uh, it was uh, two o'clock in the morning. I woke up in the middle of the night and my heart rate was racing at about 220 plus. And as most blokes do, get up, brush it off, don't think anything of it, go to work the next morning. And everyone at work said, oh, how was your evening? Will you get up to? I said, oh, funny, my heart went a bit... uh, was racing last night. They said, well, didn't you ring an ambulance or have you spoken to a doctor? So at which point rang NHS Direct and they told me, quickly get to hospital, which of course you should do if you've got a racing heart rate without any uh, acute cause. So headed to hospital, what was found on my ECG was a delta wave, which is a an indication that there's a shortcut between my atria and my ventricles, a disease known as Wolf Parkinson-White. So that was November, January, went in to see a cardiologist or an electrophysiologist. And he said I should go for a electrophysiological study, which sounds all very fancy, but it really means they just need to map out the electrical signals within your heart and analyze where it was going wrong. So went into a catheter lab, 
put a little uh, wire up your femoral vein, map out the electrical signals within your heart. And whilst looking for the accessory pathway, Wolf Parkinson White disease, they found that I went into atrial fibrillation. Unfortunately, the correction for atrial fibrillation is slightly different to that of Wolf Parkinson White. So I had to come out and wait four weeks before I could be treated for the atrial fibrillation. And can I just ask, just for the purposes of the audience, it sounds like it's something you get when you're much older. So how old were you at this point? And are you fit? I mean, do you do rugby or football? Or? Has it? So I was uh, probably one of the fittest, well, I've probably got fitter since then. But yeah, really in the sort of heyday of my rugby playing days, I was 27. I was playing for Dorking in National 2. So quite a high level of rugby, level four. I mean, by no means professional, but one of the highest levels of amateur rugby uh, in the country. So it did come a bit of a shock. And it's not necessarily something that affects you when you're older. It affects all ages. Wolf Parkinson White can actually be diagnosed at, at birth. But the atrial fibrillation affects all ages. And one thing about it is it can be proximal, so it can come and go. So it's not often that you catch atrial fibrillation, i.e. they find that you have it or diagnose atrial fibrillation unless you go to hospital and you're having a, a period of, of atrial fibrillation. So at that point you were saying that you felt your heart was racing and you went to a cardiologist at the age of 27, 27 28? Yeah, yeah. 27, yeah. And what did he say? So at the time, it was all fine that the two arrhythmia together, the atrial fibrillation and Wolf-Parkinson-White, are incredibly dangerous together because if the top part of your heart is essentially fluttering at 400 beats a minute, which is your atrial fibrillation, and the accessory pathway conducts and puts you into ventricle tachycardia, that's when there's high risk of cardiac arrest. So they wanted to make sure that one was corrected and not the other. So over the next sort of six or seven years, I was in and out of hospital every six months, whether it was for a cardioversion, which is bringing your heart rate back into sinus rhythm. So if you're in atrial fibrillation, they can electric, um, to give you an electric shock, bring your heart rate back into sinus rhythm, the regular heart rate, or going into a catheter lab to have an ablation, i.e. trying to correct the uh, incorrect pathways of your heart. So at that point, I tried to carry on playing rugby. Actually, my last game of rugby was played at Twickenham for Surrey, which is quite a nice uh, swan song. I didn't know it was my last uh, game of rugby at the time. So I went back to pre-season the next year and realised that actually rugby did flare it up and the uh, contact sport flared it up. Okay, and I ask, is it something that you can go back to work with? Is it something you, work, you have to learn how to, to work to with? Learn it? how to live with, yeah, of course. So some people have constant AF, in which case they can be medicated to bring that under control. Um, but it's something that uh, it's important that it's diagnosed and looked after by a cardiologist rather than just ignored. So something that a lot of people might brush under the carpet as a bit of a heart flutter now and then. So presumably at this stage, you're looking for a solution. So what did the cardiologist say? What do you do? Yeah, so I, ha I went, so these ablations, they're trying to correct these uh, accessory pathways were all... Um, some were successful, some were unsuccessful. And then I went in in November 2019 to have a knee operation, quite um, innocent, meniscectomy, very routine, and had it under local anaesthetic rather than general anaesthetic because of my heart history. Also, I quite like chatting to the orthopedic surgeon and seeing my knee being corrected. It's quite interesting. But then as I was halfway through the operation, about half an hour in, I said to the anaesthetist, I feel a little lightheaded. And uh, I saw him look at the machines and realised that my he, he just went white and my heart had dropped down to four beats a minute. Um, but thankfully, as I carried on training, I took up CrossFit after I gave up rugby. 
I was able to be conscious with such a low heart rate. And at that point, I saw another cardiologist and they said, look, your heart has the propensity to go into severe bradycardia, very slow. So you were, your heart's all over the place at this point? At this point, it's all over the place. Uh, so the ablation itself is one of the solutions. What is that? Because that's all around the four chambers of the heart and making sure, presumably, that you don't leave blood that gets clotted in your chambers and then that gets pumped around your body, which that, then can lead to a stroke. That's it. So the ablation is actually a correction of the electrical signal. The reason that atrial fibrillation if left untreated and you go through long periods of atrial fibrillation, there it leaves little eddy currents in your heart and the blood not pumping properly, which can cause clotting and, worst case scenario, a, a stroke. So therefore, a lot of atrial fibrillation, people who are living with atrial fibrillation will be prescribed blood thinners with roxaban or, or similar. And so this ablation, how many times do you see how it goes? Does the, does the cardiologist say it isn't 100% solution we'll have to see how we go and then you'll keep going will you to see that's it and i'm a bit of a oh, special case well in many ways <laughs> but the uh the ablation has an 80 percent success rate so i had three or four ablations both for the atrial fibrillation which uh, an ablation for that is targeted around your pulmonary vein which is where the insulation is lacking and therefore needs to be and so a pulmonary vein isolation is what they would treat for af um, but trying to correct that accessory pathway the um, connectivity between my atria and my ventricles, none of these worked. And in fact, the reason that I went into bradycardia is because it sounds like through my various heart operations, they it's messed with my regular conductivity of my heart. And this is why I now have a pacemaker fitted. So in January, February 2020, I had a pacemaker fitted. Okay. And then you thought about, actually, there's many people of different ages in the UK that are struggling with this. And because it relates to your heart, I bet they're quite worried about it. That's it. I, so I actually found, at being sort of a, I mean, I, my mechanical engineering background, so I took a lot of interest in the science of what happened when I was in hospital and made the cardiologists talk me through it and talk me through the science of everything that was happening. So being 28, 9 at the time, having gone through all of these um, heart issues, I found myself at the other end of the, the phone to friends or friends of friends who had been diagnosed with an arrhythmia, and were looking to hear from someone who wasn't a person in a white coat explaining what a catheter lab was to them, what a cardioversion was, and just wanted to hear a bit more of a patient side story to what they were going through. And so I probably spoke to 10, 20 people who had been through similar or were going through similar experiences. And then it kind of made me realise that it's um, something that everyone should be talking about a lot more. And then, of course, the big headline cardiac arrests like Christian Eriksen or Fabrice mm. Mwamba, I think a lot of people may, might take it for granted that a defibrillator was accessible at the time. So rather than waking up one night at three in the morning with a racing heart, you woke up at three in the morning and thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to think about rowing single-handed across the Atlantic. So when did that come about and what do you want to achieve from that? So it wasn't quite, uh, it wasn't quite a, a bolt from the blue, but not dissimilar. So I was, uh, I actually was skateboarding from Bristol to Bath during lockdown with one of my best, well, not during lockdown, one of those breaky lockdown bits and with one of my best friends. And we met for a, a cider in a pub called the Corrie Tap in Bristol. And uh, this friend of a, a friend said, oh, I had someone who just finished rowing the Atlantic. And then Sean and I, who've been walking in Norway together, loved a bit of adventure. He said, look, I think you'd like to do that. And so 
wasn't really realized at the time, but when I got home, I was like, I think I do want to row the Atlantic. And then I investigated about uh, what it took to row the Atlantic, what the Atlantic campaigns organize a race every year, the Atlantic Challenge, currently without a sponsor, so it's changing names. So it's formerly being known as the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, but mm. changing sponsor for next year. And I just couldn't get this idea out of my head. And then when trying to build a campaign for something so large, I was trying to work out, do I want to do it on my own or as a pair or four? Mo- traditionally, most people do it as a four or a two. So I went to the gym that I uh, go to after rugby or since playing rugby. And the chap who owns my gym is an ex-British Olympic rower. And I said to Fraser, Fraser, you fancy rowing the Atlantic? He said, yeah, that's an excellent idea. And then very quickly, we had three or four people within the gym who thought that rowing the Atlantic was the best thing that was their next adventure. So I inquired with the race, asked them what it entailed to enter a team, and they told me there was a three-year wait list. And so this wait list, I thought, oh, am I really going to be able to... I'm obsessed with this idea. It's in my head. I can't stop thinking about it. I dream about waves. I was trying to keep everyone as obsessed with this idea as me. So I said to them, look, chaps, I think I might do this on my own. And then Fraser turned around to me and said, well, I didn't think my back would hold up anyway. (laughs) And I was glad you told me now. We've got that out of the way. And then, of course... Trying to build a campaign, it gives you this the opportunity to raise funds and awareness. The race gets a huge amount of publicity. So it gives this opportunity to raise funds and awareness for a cause. And going back to the heart aspect of things is I've already found myself raising and talking to people about heart arrhythmia. So why not start a charity, formalize it and raise funds for those living with heart arrhythmia? Great. So just to give us an idea... When is it that you're starting to row from here or is it from the Canary Islands? And how long do you think it's going to take you and the dates? So I set off in December 2023 from Lagomera in the Canary Islands, 5,000 kilometres across the Atlantic to Antigua or English Harbour in Antigua. Um, So this is single-handed and how long will that take, do you think? Single-handed, unsupported. The world record is 30 days, but the person who won last year's race finished in 55. So I'm thinking anywhere between 30 if the weather is is good and 60 if it's not too good. Okay, so bearing in mind you've got atrial fibrillation, that you have a pacemaker fitted, what do you need to do to make sure that you're going to be fit enough to have a go at getting the best time to row single-handed across the Atlantic? So most importantly is getting familiar with your boat. And so spending a lot of time on the boat, on my own, learning how to live in that sort of area, learning how to eat, how to sleep, how to use the water maker, the desalinator, how to cook, how to set uh, the chart plotter, etc. So first of all, spending the most amount of time in the boat that I can. Secondly, to become as robust as possible. So if I get injured on the Atlantic on my own, if you're rowing in a four and you lose an engine, so to speak, you've still got three more engines. If you're rowing solo and you get injured, and incredibly uh, problematic. Uh, so I'm signed up with a coach, Gus Barton, who is probably the go-to strength and conditioning coach for those looking to row the Atlantic. And I've already been working together for a year, uh, making sure that my joints are robust, that I've got the good range of mobility in my hip, Mobility is good, knee mobility, ankle mobility. I've got a strong core to be able to uh, maintain position sitting in that seat for as long as it needs. So from an audience point of view, as I'm thinking, it's a terrifying challenge. You're sat 24 hours a day, 
for potentially 55 days to win this event. Could be longer. Yeah, if you and it must be very driven by the weather conditions. So do you have to go training every day or? So at the moment, I'm training an hour, an hour and a half every day of the week. That's not that rigorous. Some days is not as vicious as others. Um, go through blocks, which is really important when, when training for a big adventure like this is to certainly not overtrain. One can overtrain and get injured. Um, the ability to be able to train every day is also very important. So luckily, I'm currently going through a mobility block. So quite low, uh, low impact, lots of uh, low heart rate work, but um, things will ramp up a bit in, in January. And so you also run a wine business that's been around for a long time, second generation, and you have to travel all the way across Europe, Australia. You've got agencies that you represent to lots of different wine businesses. How do you train for an hour and a half and run a business? Well, then my alarm clock goes off uh, suitably early in the morning. So my alarm was, alarm's off at five, in the gym by 5.45. And that little drive to the gym is about 20 minutes for me. So that's quite a nice time for me to get my head sorted. If I didn't have that 20-minute drive, it would be very different. But so yeah, in the gym till 7, 7.15, back home, walk the dog, in the office by 9, regular sort of 9 to 5 hours, and then potentially another session in the evening. And so you've got um, 13 months ahead of you of getting up at 5 in the morning, coming out the gym at 7.15. And what about your diet? Is that something you have to think about? It is actually one of the uh, sponsors that signed up as a continuous blood glucose monitoring company. And so they will be able to stream my blood glucose from the sea. So the next year, I'm working with a friend who's a nutritionist um, to work out what foods best fuel my training. So whether that be carbs or fats. At the moment, I can't eat enough because I'm training sort of a eight, nine hours a week. I don't have the time to eat enough properly. And, and actually something that I really need to look at in the next couple of months is starting to nail down my, my nutrition. But uh, So if you roll the clock forward to November 2023, you'll be getting to the final six weeks, probably four weeks of preparation. Is there anything that changes between what you're training for today and, and how your body is being prepared in comparison to that last month? 100%. So I, at the moment, it doesn't really matter if I'm overtraining. But come November, those last four weeks, it's the most important thing for me to deregulate my central nervous system, be calm, be in a nice headspace, take some time off, just relax, because the start is imminent. Okay, so then let's assume you're now sitting in your boat, and you're on the start line, and you're thinking 55 days. Now, I've sailed across the Atlantic on a sailing boat, with four people, and all you see for day in, day out is the horizon and nothing else. Occasionally, you might come across a whale or flying fish. When I left Martha's Vineyard, surrounded by sharks, which was a little worrying inside the first couple of days. But the experience of doing nothing 24 hours a day, it takes a while to get used to it. I'm really looking forward to it. And in fact, that's one of the main things I am looking forward to I was listening to another team of four that rode across the Atlantic recently, and one chap said, I don't know how anyone does it as a team of four. It must be so much easier to do it solo. And of course, what he's really talking about is mentally having to put up with three other people that you may or may not know. And I'm quite glad that that team dynamic won't exist for me. So if I wanted to stop and swim and have a little fish in the middle of the Atlantic, I can do that. And if I wanted to row for 20 hours a day as much as I can to try and break a world yeah. record, I can also do that. Now, I was 17, and you say that, 
But actually, when you when you see nothing all day, all night, because what people think is you're rowing during the day, during light. But actually, you've got to mentally get your head around the fact it's 24 hours for 55 days. It's all the time, night and day. Have you, in your own mind, got a routine sorted out? And my other question is, the feeling of actually diving in or jumping into the water when you can't see anybody other than the horizon and you've no idea what's in the water and how deep it is and whether the boat's going to be there when you come out is quite scary. Well, that's just now the last thing you said of knowing that the boat's going to be there where you when you get out is I'm attached to the boat at all times. So I have a, almost a little climbing harness with a safety line attached to a, uh, a line on the boat. The worst way to go is to go over the side of the boat and it drifts away in the current. Not a pleasant uh, way to die. Um, a lot of things we talk about, you dive into the ocean, you can't see the bottom. Of course, you've got to look out for what there might be around, but you have to get out at some point to clean the barnacles and, and algae off the bottom of your boat. But yes, I have in my mind thought about the relentlessness and I really am really looking forward to those, uh, those just hours. I suppose some people away. might think, oh, he'll be rowing for 10 hours a day, pottering along and, going to sleep. and then going to sleep. And I wondered, in your own mind, do you want to break it up and make it a little bit more exciting? No, so the, uh, the classic uh, set of timing would be two hours on, two hours off. And that's because as a two or a four, it's very easy to change. But as a soloist, I think, because you, you can't really row for more than three, four, five hours at a time, you need to get off the oars at some point. And so two hours on, two hours off is, is classic. But as a soloist, I was thinking of doing three hours on and one hour off in the day and followed by a, a four-hour sleep at night. Is there a reason why you're starting the race in Tenerife in December? Is it current-driven or...? Yeah, that's it. So the, the route is called Trade Winds 2, so that east to westerly winds and current move in that general direction. So when you do stop rowing, if the weather is playing ball, you float in the, in the correct direction. If the wind's blowing in another direction, uh, you can put down a what's known as a parachute anchor, which uh, stops you from drifting in the wrong direction. Okay. Uh, and sometimes you might not want to row against the wind at all. So it's not just when you're, you're not rowing. You might have two or three days where the wind is blowing too strongly for you to fight against it. And I would also be worried about a Force 8 would be a slightly terrifying event because you're very close to the water in this boat. And that would be gale force. Yeah. Force nine is a hurricane. You definitely want to avoid that. But a full-on storm at force 10, there is nowhere you can go. You're in it. What happens? What do you do? Bunker down, lock the cabin doors, <laughs> uh, and just hope for the best, really. And if you've the parachute anchored down, if the, if it, if the force storm is in the wrong direction... Maybe hopefully the storm's in the right direction. Um, but no, if, if the weather turns bad, it's in the cabin. Uh, listen to Harry Potter audiobooks if you can hear them over the noise of the waves and the wind. <laughs> so you talk about the cabin. Describe the boat to us because in an open rowing boat is what's in my mind. Yeah. What is different about your boat? So it's a seven metre long, two metres wide, roughly, and it has a bubble at each end. So a bubble for a cabin, like a big, elongated ping pong ball at the bow and the stern uh, with a flat tray in the middle with your seat and uh, rowing position. Great. And if it goes over because you get clobbered by a big wave? Itself, it self-writes. Okay. So it, uh, the ballast in the bottom, you have uh, emergency drinking water as well in the bottom. So Because sometimes this weather can last for two or three days. 
and I'll be in the cabin therefore for two or three days. Yeah. Oh, you're not selling to me. You don't want to come next year. Not not, not Wave Wrangler 2024. I tell you what, I I will do my best to turn up in Antigua for the the end bit. Brilliant. And what happens at the end? How much are you looking to raise? What is the awareness? How do you get this amazing challenge out in front of people to get more people aware of the Heart Foundation, atrial fibrillation? That's it. So to fund the campaign, I'm looking to uh, businesses like yourself who can use it as a tool to engage with clients or employees or build a brand image. And so that would fund the campaign. And then once that's that's done, we'll go public get a good PR team on board, uh, explain that I I believe I'll be the first person to row an ocean with a pacemaker. Not that it's important to me, but just important for those living with an implanted heart device to show you can do more than just sit on the sofa. And so, yeah, looking to raise money in this instance for the British Heart Foundation in the name of uh, those living with arrhythmia doing fun things. Elliot, that's a... Great explanation from start to finish. It sounds terrifying. I look forward to seeing you in Antigua. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Wrangling Waves podcast with myself and Tim. If you'd like a little bit more information about my campaign, please head to wavewrangler.co.uk or, of course, follow on Instagram at wavewrangler underscore UK. Each month, I'll be interviewing someone with an inspirational story and giving updates about my training and how the campaign is going. It would mean a huge amount to me and anyone living with arrhythmia if you were to share this podcast. Thank you so much again for listening. Listener.